0: Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks so much for joining me. As always, really appreciate it. This week, I'm speaking with Dr. Hank Perdilla. Now, he he covers so much it's almost impossible to kind of talk about what the topic of this conversation is but let's let's talk about how i got to um how i got to dr fredella how i decided to interview him this interview took place a few months ago it was back when i was looking for people in the criminal justice world and the forensic science world to talk about, uh, you know, the craft. You know, I, I, if you remember and you listened, I spoke with Dr. Henry Lee, who's one of the leading forensic scientists in the world, in the country. Um, he, he's even got a, a forensic science school named after him. So definitely a, a huge, huge person in, in that uh, in that space. But I also reached out to Dr. Fredella. Who is a professor at um, Arizona State University, and he kind of sits at the intersection of criminal justice and human services and some social issues. Just he he does so many different things. Not necessarily, you know, a forensic scientist. He does have you know a huge background in that too, but. He, he he covers so much. That's that's what I'm trying to say. That you know we we dove into so many things that I would have I've never thought to uh, to even talk about or, or that I even knew I was getting myself into. But I'm so glad that that I did. So the things that we're gonna cover with uh, with Dr. Fidela this week is just his his career, which has been very very impactful. He started as an attorney, then he worked for a medical examiner. Then he uh, started working in the, the field that he is now, which is, you know, a professor. He started working in academics. Um, we're going to talk about some of the stories as a um, medical examiner. We're also going to talk about some stories that he did, I guess, before all of that, and that is working as a law clerk for a federal judge and some uh, some cases that came up in in that world where he learned— just how dire some of the situations are when it comes to uh prisoners rights and uh, and dealing with with mental health in the prison system you know the the prison system is one of the biggest providers of of mental health services in the country and and uh you know what dr Fidella thinks is that's not uh and that's not acceptable that's not okay, and we're wasting a lot of time, a lot of resources, a lot of money, a lot of taxpayer money on on that when there should be a lot more uh, mental health services, whether it be you know in the form of of uh, you know secure mental hospitals when things happen or even better mental health services in the community to to you know, curb some of these uh, some of these crimes from from happening in the first place. So we're going to talk about some examples he has there. One of his examples is ex- is extremely powerful when we talk about um, a a prisoner that uh, went on a hunger strike. Uh, we're going to talk just kind of the overarching issues of, of mental health and the criminal justice system, and uh, that's powerful enough. But we're going to then move into uh, another aspect, and that is um, the aspect of Laws and the changing laws when it comes to uh, transgender people and transgender rights. You know, if you're from the United States, you know that those those laws are, are changing tr- drastically and and rapidly. Currently, he's going to talk about why he doesn't feel that is uh, that's a good thing and and uh, and why um, there's a lot of misconceptions in that world. Uh, side note: There's a lot of mental excuse me a lot of misconceptions in the mental health world too uh, but there's certainly a lot of misconceptions when it comes to uh, transgender people and uh, and transgender rights uh so he's going to lay that out and he's going to kind of give uh, some some ideas there uh, he's going to talk about uh, you know the the dire situation when it comes to tying these two things together the mental health world for transgender people uh with the ever changing environment so that's a really impactful conversation too. We're going to wrap things up, but that wasn't enough talking about kind of the, the landscape of education and, and the changing world there. So, what you're going to learn this week is there's a lot of important topics that uh, are are changing rapidly, and and uh, some some for the better, and some some not. Uh, but just getting getting. I guess a, a voice on them and and getting them out on the forefront is is an important thing. Uh, he's going to lay it out and you know, very very eloquently, and I'm going to say it too that uh, the most important thing is just to have a conversation, whether you agree with with, uh, with Hank, as he wanted me to call him, whether you you don't, just being able to talk about it is a big thing, and that's that's kind of what we're we're distancing ourselves from, just the ability to even talk about some of these things and. And that's scary. So I think you're going to really uh, find this uh, conversation insightful. Whether you agree or not, uh, I think that you're going to you're going to learn a lot from Hank and you're going to, uh, you know, come away, uh, come away with maybe a, a new perspective or at least uh, an understanding of a different one. So here is Dr. Hank Fidella I'm here today with Dr. Hank Fidella Mr. Fidella how are you? Uh, I'm doing well, thanks.
1: Uh, Glad to be with you today, Jackson. Please feel free to call me Hank.
0: I will. I appreciate that, Hank. And I want you, this is maybe the hardest question of the whole evening because I've looked at your your CV. You've got a lot of stuff going on. Just introduce yourself, if you would.
1: Well, um, I am a a professor at the moment. Uh, I'm a professor at uh, Arizona State University in the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice where I also hold an affiliate professor appointment in the law school. I say at the moment, because this is something like my third career. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I I practiced law for a while. Um, I worked in a medical examiner's office for a while. I taught eighth grade before all of that. Um, and I've been a professor since uh, 1997. And so, uh, this is the career I've been with longest. I think it's, I think it's going to (laughs) stick.
0: There you go. Well, I I like it, but it sounds like a lot of things have kind of revolved around criminology and that type of world, whether it was in the legal profession, I don't know exactly what you did with the, with the medical examiner, but I just wonder what started that interest in, in, uh, you know, the criminal justice system.
1: Boy, uh, I, I usually answer that question by saying, well, I've always been interested in it. But knowing that we were going to talk today, I really gave that some thought as to when could I trace it back to when I first recognized it. And I think it, it stemmed from growing up in Brooklyn, New York in the 1970s during the age of Son of Sam. Mm. And, uh, you know, we were terrified to go out in our neighborhood. And, and um, that sort of led to uh, an interest in true crime. When I got to college, I took some classes in criminology that I found absolutely fascinating. When I got to law school, uh, my favorite classes were criminal law and procedure. And I was genuinely disappointed, perhaps even disinterested in some of the other non-criminal coursework that I needed to take. So out of sheer boredom, I, I enrolled in a joint degree program, a master's in forensic science program, and that is where I learned not only more about true crime, but also its relation to science, uh, both natural science and behavioral science, and I was hooked from that moment. So I've I've stuck with it ever since then.
0: Yeah, I love that, and I love kind of the, the correlation between previous guests, because I mean, the reason I wanted to have you on is because I've talked to this is not a true crime podcast. I've had people on from all walks of life, but I have talked to people from a lot of different worlds when it comes to um, somebody who was wrongfully incarcerated for 16 years and, and was released, somebody who caught a serial killer, the Green River killer, somebody who you know is a leading forensic scientist, and then someone who actually to kind of tie back to maybe what created your interest in criminal justice, somebody who was on the New York. Uh, City police department, police force during the Son of Sam times, and that kind of is what made him a detective too. So I love that there's always all that correlation there. And I, I want to kind of ask you in your email you when, that you sent me, you talked about how you're kind of the odd duck in in this world because you do kind of dabble in a lot of different areas. Um, but I want to ask you, I guess, what made you decide? Because you just talked about how you've done so many different things. This is the career. That has stuck with you what made you decide to go into the academic side rather than you know stay kind of maybe as a a practitioner in the world of law
1: oh, that's a tough question uh i did not want to practice law because i did not enjoy it i, I, I did it for a little while i'm like this just isn't fun um i i, I found it uh long hours without any upside i didn't i didn't see my efforts resulting in the quality of the improvement of the justice system. So it was a little demoralizing, a lot of drudge work, way more uh, than I thought it would be when I went to start the study of law. But yet the discipline itself, I find fascinating. It was just the day-to-day practical part that I didn't necessarily enjoy very much, which is what led me uh, in law school to sort of turn to maybe the intersection of law, criminology and forensic science by working in the medical examiner's office. I did that as an internship. I loved it so much. I built uh, an area of specialization in that. and I gave that up in spite of the fact that I thought it was the most interesting job I probably ever had, mainly because it's it's really hard to deal with death every single day. And there were some of those cases that were heartbreaking. 86, 87-year-old woman, I recall, having been murdered on the streets of Washington, D.C., she had less than $4, $4 in change in her wallet. And she was killed during a robbery for change. And that, that really weighed me down. And a few days later, we did an autopsy on... Uh, A four or five month old infant who's the boyfriend of his mother picked up the infant and hurled it by its ankles against the wall of their apartment because the baby wouldn't stop crying. And that kind of needless, senseless death day in, day out started to wear on me a bit uh, before. I really had dug into the long-term practice. And so a very wise and kind uh, woman with whom I worked, her name is Dr. Sylvia Comparini. She was a long-time practicing forensic pathologist in Washington, D.C., said to me, if this is wearing you out in your first year, you've got to find something else to do. So I was glad for the uh, suggestion (laughs) and... uh, what I, what I found was it was a lot more fun to dig into the academic side of it, at least for me, because it meant I got to research science, I got to research criminology, I got to research how it all fit into a legal framework, and then I could consult, I could teach, especially like helping students, the next generation of students understand uh, how this is relevant to what they're going to be doing, it was so rewarding that... Uh, I stuck
0: with it. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think kind of our, our story is a little bit parallel because my dad is an attorney. He owns a law firm, but he always says, do not. I mean, when I was growing up, do not get into law. That's I mean, unless you really, really want to. But that's what, what you're doing. is kind of exactly what I I work in higher education, too. So we're, we're similar there. But you've uh, you've got about 35 more pages on that CV than I do. But uh i want to i want to talk to you now about uh you 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 talk about all these different jobs that you had i don't know whether you mentioned this one but in the email you mentioned a story that i've got to hear so we've got to get to your time uh working with the federal court system what did you do there and then tell me this tell me this story i think it has to do with a a hunger strike if i'm not mistaken so
1: when i graduated law school i was Fortunate enough to be offered a federal judicial clerkship in the United States District Court for the District of Arizona. So, a federal judge who sat in Phoenix. And he and I are still friends. Uh, he's still on the bench. Uh, in fact, we had lunch together on Friday. Mm. And I learned so much being in his chambers. I didn't, nothing in law school prepared me for how much responsibility federal law clerks have. You would think that, let's face it, kids out of law school wouldn't, wouldn't have such big roles to play. But, you know, the cases come in and the judges count on the law clerks to read through all of the filings and and uh, draft orders and decisions that they then, you know, sit and talk with you through and hone and ultimately they they make decisions most frequently based on those recommendations that you do during your research. And so uh, that was really exciting to me to see how it all came together. But one of my great surprises during that year was how much of the federal docket in the District of Arizona was comprised of prisoner civil rights cases. The kinds of lawsuits that uh, inmates in either jails or prisons file, some of them really heartbreaking cases things like excessive use uh, excessive use of force um horrific conditions of confinement inadequate medical care really tragic things that in a in a country as as wealthy as ours um you would hope we wouldn't treat people that badly but we do and so you get some of these cases that um uh, uh, are, are difficult to read and as you dig into them and, and realize that the correctional system has a lot of failures, you you feel good insofar as you're able to maybe help shape some of those reforms. But that quickly became um, tempered by two factors. One, there's only so much that you can do in the federal courts. Judges can't run correctional institutions. So they're they're asked to maybe fix some problems that are way beyond the scope of what a judge is able to do. So it's frustrating, I think, to the judges who really want to see positive change come around. But it's it's just it's asking an awful lot of people whose jobs really shouldn't involve that. The second thing that was really remarkable to me was how many of those prisoner civil rights cases were not. Meritorious. They weren't those really horrible things that you want to help correct. Instead, they were things like my uh, uh, rights against cruel and unusual punishment were violated because I have no access to Nikes or my ice cream was served melted. Uh, There were these uh, really frivolous claims. And they were, by and large, the overwhelming majority of the cases, but there were so many of them that the amount of judicial resources that were spent on those prevented judges from devoting enough time and energy to other cases that mattered, that were meritorious, uh, civil and criminal alike. So that, uh, that was a real eye-opener for me, and, and, and one of the cases that I still write about to this day, it's been 30 or 35 years was a a gentleman whose name was Toshomi Abate. Mr. Abate was an immigrant to the United States uh, from Africa. I think it was Nigeria, but I'm I'm not completely sure about that. No, no, Ethiopia. I'm sorry, it was Ethiopia. Um, And he came to the U.S. to study. But he had, uh, at minimum, paranoid delusional disorder and arguably a full-blown paranoid schizophrenia. And while he was uh, working on his degree, um, he moved in with a roommate and he wound up killing her and was prosecuted for her murder, convicted, sentenced to prison, where his mental illness, like many mentally ill people who go to prison, they decompensate, they get worse, their mental illness goes untreated. And that led him to file dozens and that might be an understatement, it might've been hundreds, but at least dozens that I can recall, dozens of prisoner civil rights cases, arguing X, Y, and Z, right? Uh, These were not filed to be vexatious or to give his jailers a hard time. They were filed because in his delusional belief system, he was being denied his rights to practice his religion. He claimed to be a member of an Eastern uh, or of the Ethiopian Orthodox faith that required him to maintain a special diet. And he filed a prisoner civil lawsuit. And for whatever reason, the Arizona Department of Corrections never responded to the lawsuit. And so he wanted default judgment. And when that meant that they now had to give him this special diet and the the dates would change, there was no logic to it. His Because his, his diet was in his head. It wasn't like on a calendar the way that, uh, let's say, um, some other faiths have special times where we can go here and here and here. You have to abide by these rules. So he would keep filing orders to hold them in contempt of court for not giving him the diet that existed in his head. Uh, including giving him a coffee creamer of a particular brand, Mocha Mix, as if any other non-dairy coffee creamer somehow violated the tenets of his religion. And so the judge for whom I clerked set aside his default judgment and said, we ought to litigate this on the merits. And he appealed and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals reinstated the default judgment and said, well, you know, the Arizona Department of Corrections should have responded to his lawsuit in a timely manner. Now they're stuck with it. And so here comes these dozens of filings, dozens of lawsuits. And finally, the judge for whom I clerked said, we got to have a hearing. I can't manage one inmate's diet uh, from a courthouse after the fact. Uh, And what we learned during the course of this multi-day hearing was this diet wasn't required by his faith, that the Department of Corrections had been making a bona fide effort to give him the diet that he needed, but because the requirements changed based upon his delusionary belief system on any given day, they couldn't keep up with it. And so ultimately, we set aside uh, his diet and said he's not entitled to this because it's not part of the true tenets of his faith. And his response to that was to go on a hunger strike, and he eventually starved himself to death. Mm. And so to me, this was tragic for a multiplicity of reasons. The biggies in my mind were that someone's mental illness went so untreated that he wound up dying as a result of it. But also watching what this did to correctional officials who were dealing with someone who was really beyond their uh, purview. Uh, and then the burden that that put on the courts, the hundreds of pages of filings across dozens of different lawsuits, because someone who was mentally ill, who arguably should have been handled through a secure mental health facility instead of a prison where they lacked the resources to care for him. So that led me to uh, carve out one of my research interests. It's still with me to this day is to look at how the justice system treats mentally ill criminal offenders. And I've written some books on it and I've written some several articles on it. Uh, but I'm still, I still follow it in the news and um, still consult from time to time. And we haven't gotten any better, sadly, in all those years.
0: Yeah, that's that's kind of what I took from this story that, I mean, I, I've always known that there's a, a good chunk of of people that are in the, the criminal justice system that are in prisons that really, you know, have mental illness that is way beyond the scope of what these correctional facilities can handle. That it really is just a kind of a, a crisis in our system when it comes to truly being able to handle people, uh, uh, you know, with with different mental illnesses. I assume, you know, you said that your your studies, you, it hasn't really gotten any better. So what, what do you think can, can be done with that? I mean, I feel like just like you were talking about with, you know, frivolous lawsuits and trying to navigate those to find the true lawsuits that have merit. How do we navigate it between the people who truly need help and people who maybe don't and are, are just kind of trying to, to work the system for a lack of a better word?
1: So it's a bit of a,
0: misconception
1: that people try and work the system. Um, we call that uh, the technical diagnosis in psychology or psychiatry is malingering, that they're faking mental illness. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty hard to fake mental illness when you are an inpatient uh, a person in a secure psychiatric facility, which is what happens if you are arrested and, and have signs of mental illness, or at least are faking them. And, you know, we put you under 24 hour a day, supervision. And we've got psychologists and psychiatrists and forensic nurses and clinical social workers and all these people observing you, usually for 30, 60, 90 days before they even file a a report with the clerk. And you would have to fake it for that long, not not, uh, slip up. And know enough about all of the correct versus the incorrect symptoms of what it is you're trying to fake to carry on that charade. I mean, you'd have to be an Oscar-winning actor with a doctorate in clinical psychology to be able to pull that off. So it's very rare that people successfully fake it. We're really good at snuffing that out during that pretrial period uh, of observation. So I'm not so worried about that. I'm more worried about the fact that the largest mental health providers in the United States are the jail systems of Los Angeles County and New York. So what can we do about it? Well, certainly the community, the promise of community mental health that started in the 1970s has failed. Right? That never happened because we never invested as, as we emptied the asylums and said, oh, we all that money that we're spending. We're going to return to the communities for community mental health didn't happen. And so we could invest there and maybe stop people from getting involved in in activities that get them uh, involved in the justice system. Uh, Another thing that we could do that we should do is we've made it so difficult to successfully claim an insanity or diminished capacity defense and didn't used to be that way but people got so upset that john hinckley was acquitted uh, of the attempted assassination of uh, ronald reagan that we changed the law congress passed a law changing it in the federal system and about 36 states promptly followed suit and now we, we went from from a system that had worked for several hundred years To a system that now, it is so rare that people are able to use these defenses of excuse. We've got some really good data on this. Contrary to popular belief, they are asserted in only one half of 1% of all felony cases in this country. And even then, they're unsuccessful three quarters of the time. So you get people who have serious mental illness, and not just people who are claiming it because they're in trouble, right? They have long histories of documented mental illness, sometimes hospitalizations for them, and yet, despite all of that, instead of putting them in secure mental institutions where A, they would get help and B, they couldn't victimize other people, we put them in prisons where they decompensate. They maybe hurt themselves. They maybe hurt other inmates. Maybe they hurt correctional officers, but they certainly cause a lot of headaches for the correctional system and the judicial system. We can do better and we should.
0: Yeah. I love love that explanation for sure. And I want to kind of ask you, Again, kind of playing devil's advocate, like I I just was a minute ago, and given that this is your you know your entire kind of life's work when it comes to the criminal justice system and some of the issues, we're going to get into some of them you know uh, more here in a, in a moment. But we just talked about why it's so important to uh, you know to understand this and to to have maybe not change the system like you're talking about back in the eighties. Why should this? Why should it matter to people? Why you know people again playing devil's advocate people look at this and say okay the person's mentally ill or they're not mentally ill they still did the 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 crime and why should we let them off easy by going to a mental institution which big air quotes there
1: yeah well um i i I guess the first thing i would say is mental institutions aren't walks in the park uh (laughs) i I don't know that i would call that letting them off easy every aspect of your life is uh controlled for you including your freedom of movement Uh, you might be forcibly medicated. Um, That is not an easy way to exist. So in some ways, it's not very different from being incarcerated in a prison where you might actually have a little bit more freedom. Uh, However, uh, in prison, the correctional officers can't look after you the same way that uh, mental health professionals can in a secure psychiatric facility. So Uh, there's there's the humanitarian aspect of it. But for, you know, you and me and John and Jane Q public out on the street, why does it matter to them? Well, it's our tax dollars, right? We're locking up people (laughs) at taxpayer expense who uh, probably don't need to be there if we provided them with basic mental health care, which costs less. Right. So this would be a taxpayer savings if we invested in community mental health care before people uh, got to the point that they committed crimes. The second thing that it should matter is, you know, I'm going to use to show me Abate as an example again. How much of taxpayer money went into supporting the caseload of all the federal judges who had to deal with his multiplicity of lawsuits? and the law clerks who had to look into it, and the amount of uh, time and money and resources that the Department of Corrections had to put into managing this one mentally ill inmate and his special diet, right? So we ought to care about it for selfish reasons as well, right? Because it takes a toll on those people. And how about the safety of our correctional officers who are in danger when mentally ill people are there, decompensate, and aren't treated. We should care about their safety, too, the way we should care about police officers on the street who have to deal with people who haven't been properly treated. So this this affects all of us. And, and when we simply say, oh, they're getting off easy, I think it neglects the long-term or the bigger picture, rather, consequences, uh, including for people like you and me as we're walking down the street.
0: No, I think that's all very, very important. You know, it, with the university I, I work for, we actually uh, provide some some classes within several different prisons, and and that's one thing that I've I've learned because that's something that I'm involved with too. That we have classes that have you know thirty people in it and no corrections officers, period, in them. But then we have a few that do have people that maybe should be somewhere else and not within the correctional institution that then they have to provide extra staff just to make sure that the classes run properly. So no other reason, just like you said, it it saves resources and it saves a lot of money to, uh, to treat these people the way that they, they should be treated. Yes. Yeah. So I want, I want you, you know, you've already talked about, uh, you know, this particular aspect of, of your research and that's one great thing, you know, about being in academics that you don't have to just be pulled wherever you're, you're being, Um, you know, led when it came to the medical examiner or the the court system, you had to basically do whatever, whatever came up, whatever came on the docket or whatever, you know, case came in In educate. Yeah. In the education world, you can kind of research what you want to. You mentioned one um, that you, you've written a lot about. What's some other areas that you've, uh, that you've focused on?
1: Uh, I'm particularly interested in uh, the uh, law reform, criminal law reform, especially with regard to sex crimes. So I've written a lot on uh, what's wrong with the law of rape, uh, what's wrong with using criminal law as a tool to socially control uh, teenagers' sexuality, so things like sexting, for example. Um, you know, it's basically the digital equivalent of playing doctor, but if you got if you got caught playing doctor when I was a kid, um, you know, somebody yelled at you, uh, maybe you got grounded, uh, but... Uh, You get caught playing doctor digitally now, you might wind up as a convicted sex offender for the trafficking in in alleged, uh, the alleged trafficking of child pornography, just because somebody was under uh, age. And I'm not talking about adults who are doing this. Of course, they are trafficking. I'm talking about two teenagers, right? So uh, some of those laws really need reforming. And then for a long time, I've also written about uh, the inappropriateness of using uh, the law to control the sexuality of members of the LGBTQ community. And although since the year 2003, we haven't locked gay and lesbian and bisexual people up for engaging in same-sex consensual relations, uh, we are seeing a bit of a backlash against that. And we're seeing some, some laws that are being enacted right now, certainly hundreds of bills being proposed that are targeting uh, trans people in particular. And so I think, you know, we we to me, I look at this and it's sort of like one step forward and two steps back, or two steps forward, one step back, sort of depending upon uh, which... Uh, Uh, year we're in. But I don't know that that's unusual. I I imagine my colleagues in law and criminology and just people who care about social justice feel the same way about their efforts to secure women's rights and to combat racism. We've been seeing some backsliding, and that is uh, disheartening for people who have been working to improve uh, justice for all for a very long time
0: yeah and just kind of your educated guess what i mean what do you think things are going to go in when it comes to that current environment because i i've heard you know people talking about how you know things have have gotten a lot more socially acceptable when it comes to you know the lgbt community maybe 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 not as much with the t area and right. it's because it's such a smaller community everyone knows you know, somebody who is gay or lesbian, but they don't not everyone knows somebody who is trans and it's such a small community that there's not enough people fighting for that world. And that's why it's being attacked. So where do you where do you think uh, what do you think things are going to, I guess, shake out?
1: Well, I fear it's going to get worse before it gets better. Just the sheer volume of laws that are being proposed and enacted, even over vetoes in some states uh, the vetoes are being overrided um, or overrode not sure what the verb is there it's uh it is politically expedient, I think for some people to say look at what I'm doing to protect children look at what I'm doing to protect cisgender women in bathrooms, in locker rooms, in shelters, etc. And uh, people who don't know any better, people who who fear trans folks, A, for the reasons that you just said, they don't know any, so they don't know any better, but B, because some of the media paints our trans uh, 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 friends and family members uh, in, in ways that are grossly unrealistic. So A lot of members of the public just only know what they hear on the news or worse yet, what they see in the media. So think, for example, about the way that transgender people have been portrayed in cinema, going all the way back to maybe Psycho, uh, Silence of the Lambs. Um, a few horror films that I would call them B-rated flicks. Uh, but where, you know, you have this sort of uh, homicidal maniac uh who is uh, transgender, and uh, that sends a message, right, to the viewing public about how dangerous these people are. And so you get the political rhetoric, on top of that it sort of picks up on that message for expediency reasons you know drumming up a moral panic uh and and i think that's why you're, we're seeing movement in this area that I, I fear uh will take a while to disassemble and i say that because it is a moral panic it is there is no data to support the the myth of that trans women are going into female sex segregated spaces like women's shelters or women's restrooms or women's locker rooms and sexually victimizing cisgender women when they're in there. Quite the opposite. It is trans women who are victimized for using those facilities. So the narrative is just being turned on its head because it plays well in Peoria when people are trying to get elected. And I think it's gonna take a long time. It took certainly took a long time. Uh, I would argue at least 30 years of advocacy before the LGBTQ community started to see some changes in law. Um, the the With regard to gay, lesbian, and bisexual people, I think it might take a little bit longer for the trans community, only because, as you say, there are so few of them. And so they need allies to speak up on their behalf. And that's one of the reasons that I'm devoting so much of my scholarly agenda and activism to that right now. I'd love to be wrong. I'd love to to think that the US Supreme Court is gonna step in and go, wait a minute, this is sex discrimination, pure and simple, stop it and overturn these laws. Uh, Do I have any confidence that that is going to occur? Not so much.
0: Yeah, um, I want to kind of tie you know, the the two things together. You know, we're talking about these new laws that are being enacted. I mean, against you know trans rights and and things like that. What do you think that it's going to do for that community when it comes to the mental health health aspect of things? I can't imagine that it's uh, it's going to be a productive productive change.
1: Uh, it will most certainly not be. And they all, you know, members of the transgender community already have mental health issues from struggling with gender dysphoria, from struggling with family rejection, rejection by friends, uh, inadequate healthcare, unknowledgeable healthcare providers. And now they're, they're facing i lawful, well, I'm, let me rephrase that, discrimination under the law, not necessarily lawful discrimination, uh, but discrimination that is enshrined in law, they're getting it from every which way. You add to the fact that we already know they're horribly mistreated uh, uh, by members of the public sometimes, certainly by police officers who they come in contact with, there are uh, stories about the way that they are even mistreated during judicial proceedings. Uh, this isn't gonna be good for anybody's mental health and it might uh, might lead them to uh, homelessness, further victimization while out on the streets. And uh, you know it might even get them caught up in the criminal justice system themselves if they are then forced to engage in all sorts of low level crimes, not the least of which the, the one that gets a lot of attention is, is sex work. Uh, that that then puts them in a system where they are very likely to be victimized once incarcerated. So it's, it's very, it's a vicious cycle.
0: Certainly is. And how, how do you think, you know, we, we talked about how it's, it's kind of a, a bleak environment at at the moment for, for a lot of these things, but how do you think that this can uh, can be combated as a whole, you know, to, to eventually, eventually make those changes. Maybe it's going to get worse before it gets better, but what, uh, what's going to happen to make it better?
1: Wow, you're asking me to wave my magic wand and fix uh, social ills.
0: You can't Uh, do that?
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, for one thing, we know, uh, we have some really good data on this uh, that comes out, uh, not of my discipline, but of media studies, right, Uh, that people like you, right, can help by highlighting the injustices in podcasts, in news articles, in television shows, right, even scripted uh, uh, television and movies, we know that that exposure to members of the uh, LGB, leave out the T for the moment, population over the years made people less scared of gay, lesbian, and bisexual people, which made them more likely to accept them and less likely to champion laws that discriminated against them. So people felt a little freer to come out. And the more they got to know real people in their own world who came out, the more likely they were to stand up and say, that's not right. The law ought not to be doing that. And so I do think media representation, both in uh, news media and in entertainment media, is super important uh, in paving the way. The second thing, and and I hesitate to say this because it, I don't want this to be misinterpreted as self-importance because I'm under no delusion that my work uh, somehow is magical and is, is going to fix any of this. But if I could turn to the importance of what I would call scholarly activism for a moment. I think too many academics, regardless of discipline, but especially in the social sciences uh, do outstanding work that really shed light, deep insights into social problems. And their insights live behind paywalls in journals that nobody reads so that the insights they have to share, which sometimes include some public policy recommendations that might make things better, Don't make it out to the people who most need it. Hmm. So I think it's really important for academics to not only continue to do their quality research that they then publish in their peer-reviewed journal articles, but to then take that research and turn it into blog posts, turn it into uh, news commentary, what, what, what in my discipline we would call public criminology where we go on the news, where we go um, on podcasts, where we talk to people about how can we take our research and show people who might not have any interest in reading scholarly journals, here's what the problem is and here are potentially some solutions. And so I I I think some platforms like the Conversation or the Crime Report are really good at getting academics to do that, but we need people doing it as op-eds in their local newspapers we need them appearing uh, as guest commentators on their local news broadcasts it just can't be in the washington post and the the new york times because that doesn't always reach the audience who most needs to hear it so i would hope that we would start to do things like that and then a third thing that i think that scholarly activists can do and it sort of gets back to a comment that you raised uh that you made a little earlier about me being an odd duck in what i do uh, is that we have to cross our disciplinary boundaries i think social science in particular has good data that law and public policy scholars and law and public policy makers don't know because we don't talk to those folks and conversely Legal scholars and lawmakers and public policy makers um, have some ideas about what they might try to make things better. And if they came to empirical researchers and said, hey, has this been tried before? We can say, yes, this works or no, that doesn't work. Or hey, that's a novel idea. Let's design an actual experiment that methodologically would tell us yes or no, that we could then tweak and disseminate and get out there to other people so they could know this worked or this didn't. And and that sort of building bridges between law, social science, natural science, and public policy is sort of the thing that I am most motivated to do in my own work these days. But I'm certainly not alone. And I'm certainly not even one of the people who's doing it well. There are many other people who are doing it better than I. But the more of us who do it, the more I think change is likely to come about. And so I would hope that my fellow academics would uh, move a little bit uh, out of our comfort zones to sort of push in that regard and also to make sure that our students know about it. You know, I I think this this sort of stuff needs to come alive in the classroom so that the next generation of justice professionals, my students go on to be cops, my students go on to be correctional officers, my students go on to be prosecutors, defense attorneys, and maybe even one day judges. If they are exposed to this during their uh, undergraduate education, maybe a graduate education follows, maybe not, it's not really relevant. If we get them thinking about it, In terms of what does work and what doesn't work and where are the injustices that can be combated, that might mean that the next generation of justice professionals will be in a position to effectuate change in their agencies. And it's one of the things that scares me most about the don't say gay bills, for example, that uh, uh, Florida uh, enacted and now has expanded. If you cannot and it's not just just say gay. Right. It's, it's other stuff as well. Right. They're 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 censoring people's ability to talk about racism. Right. If you cannot talk about racial injustice and the history of that in our country and how it is being perpetuated right now into disproportionate minority contact uh, between police and and communities of color and and disproportionate uh, ways that people of color are treated from the moment they are then arrested. They're less likely to be granted bail. If they are granted bail, they're more likely to have monetary conditions attached to it that they can't afford. And that has all sorts of downstream consequences to uh, what happens later on in uh, not only their cases, but then when the cases are resolved. And so it's this sort of very vicious cycle that is the role of higher education to address and, and too many states are trying to hamper my colleagues in Georgia, for example, in Mississippi and in Florida. Uh, that's dangerous. That is viewpoint discrimination. In my opinion, this is a violation of the First Amendment, and it is simply un-American. We ought to be talking about difficult topics. We can disagree about them, but to not talk about them at all, that's not a democracy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's kind of what this podcast is about. There's I bring people on with a lot of different points of views. Um, you know, it's really just a matter of getting together and, and trying to find. I mean, things, some things, you know, you just there's not a consensus for because it's just not acceptable to begin with. But to, uh, we just need more more conversation on a lot of a lot of different things. One thing I do want to mention, based on what you said earlier, I would never call my friend Hank here an, an odd duck. You put that in your email, and that's the reason I I use that word. <laughs> But I want I want to I want to play devil's advocate here with with some of the things that that we were talking about earlier and you know the laws that are are being enacted. I mean, what do you say to to, to people? Because I've I've heard this argument before, so I, I want to kind of bring it bring it to your attention and see what you, what you say to it. And that is that a lot of these things that are 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 being enacted, whether it is anti-trans bills, whether it is girls, sports, all these different things that we have always historically kind of ruled in our our criminal justice system, the way that these laws are now trying to to codify that, you know, as a country, we've always been this way. Just some societal changes have made things so, quote, unquote, loose that now we have to codify some of these things. What do you say to that?
1: Uh, I would say to somebody who makes those arguments, you are ignorant of history. Uh, so let me uh, flesh that out uh, a bit especially with regard to things like transgender rights Tra- the the anti-trans movement is rooted in a um, uh, a philosophy right that's that's really what it is because there's no data to support this but it's rooted in a philosophy that basically says um there are two sexes male, female, men, women, and that's it. That is itself a very uh, colonial way of looking at sex. Certainly here in the United States, for example, prior to uh, colonization from Western Europe, we had plenty of Native American uh, indigenous tribes who viewed a third gender. They call them two-spirited people. And there are many other societies around the globe that even to this day do not reduce things to that binary moreover science is teaching us that the binary is just wrong right that there are for example intersex people right with people whose uh, hormone levels do not align with maybe uh, the sex that was assigned to them at birth Based on visible anatomy, but then we also find out that there's chromosomal differences and there's all sorts of things that might not even be brought to attention until someone hits puberty or someone tries to have a child. Uh, so th- this notion, it's not as clear cut, uh, as it's always been that way. It's, it, it that way represents, uh, a, a colonial method of thinking that disregards a history that far predates and spans broader uh, geographies than, than the narrow view of people say it's always been that way. No, it's just not so. Uh, the other thing that I would say to people who make that argument is just because something might have been that way for a long time in this country, not always, but for a long time, is not a good enough reason to perpetuate it right? Slavery was that way for a long time, and we, we know better now, right? I mean, it's written into the Constitution that Black people were three-fifths of a human. Today, we treat them as full humans because they are, right? So that this, this notion that we have to hang on to things because it's been that way for a long time, if they are unjust, we ought to be fixing them, not perpetuating them.
0: I, I, I like that. I want to uh, I want to kind of h- wrap this up a little bit because we could we could talk about I think this topic for for a long time. I think you've been talking about a, a good chunk of it for for thirty plus years, right? So I want to I want to talk about how, what your your students are are learning. What I guess what what are you in the classroom? I know that you talked about your your passion with that. What what's the pluses and minuses of, of that world? Because of course you've already talked about, and the reason that I'm in higher education too is just helping shape you know the next generation. Maybe maybe in lots of different topics, you maybe the current ruling generation may have a, a few things uh, a little bit confused. So you know the next generation, you you just always have hope for that that next generation on, on lots of different things so that's an easy that's an easy plus in it for the world of teaching but maybe you've got another one but talk about maybe some some minuses too because that's a it's a long uh, it's a long path to that next generation too it
1: is so i will respond to your question but i feel the need to preface my answer uh-huh. uh, caveat and say overwhelmingly i think it's all positive right? That teaching and working with students for the exact reasons you just said, the hopes of helping to shape people to think critically, to solve real world problems is absolutely worth it. End of story, right? Are there drawbacks? Of course, there are drawbacks. I have yet to meet a professor who likes grading, for example. (laughs) Uh, But to me, the bigger drawback is that uh, in my lifetime, and I'm not I'm not that old. I mean, I'm, I'm 54 years old. I don't consider myself geriatric, but I started teaching in 1991. So I'm at it for more than 30 years. And in that period of time, I have noticed some changes, not for the better. So, for example, when I started teaching, uh, people did not have laptops, tablets, and cell phones in classrooms. And now we are so attached to our electronics, that putting them down and not using them, whether it's for 50 minutes or 75 minutes or three hours, however long a particular class might be, uh, causes such anxiety and such consternation that people can't seem to be able to do it. And it means that they're distracted from the learning tasks at hand. They're not paying attention to lecture. They're not active participants in, in uh, classroom activities. Most importantly, they're not necessarily paying attention to what their Peers are saying, and that is where, in my opinion, the real learning happens, peer to peer. And so, I, I, I think that that is a negative. Another thing that I think is a bit of a negative, and I don't know if it's because uh, I have some colleagues who say it's really a function of No Child Left Behind having been enacted, but maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. That's an empirical question, and I don't have the data to answer it. But the the, the point of that allegation, anyway is that there w- There came a time in the not too distant past where teaching to the test started to matter more than anything else, especially if school funding, for example, was premised on enough students hitting a certain percentage on that that those achievement tests. And so students got to be conditioned to, we got to teach what's on the test, they got to know what's on the test, they got to know what, they have to show what they know on the test. <sighs> Testing is not really all that important in the development of critical thinking skills. In learning to ask, what do we know? What do we not know? How do we know what we allege we know? What are the biases? What are the the underlying assumptions? These sorts of hallmarks of critical thinking, I find, have been undercut in my students over the last 20 some odd years, such that when I get a first year student um, in my intro to criminal justice class, for example, they're so used to saying, is it on the test and memorize regurgitate on a multiple choice or true false question that instead, when I ask them a question that requires them to think critically, it might be the first time they've ever been asked to do it. Mm -hmm. And, and, And so I find it's a little bit of an uphill battle but that's my job. So I do it. But it would be really great if K-12 education could return to that because that was not my experience early on in my career where first-year students were eager to compare and contrast conflicting viewpoints and question each other's assumptions, question even what were they were reading in the book, assuming they're even reading what's in the book. Uh, and, and I think a little bit of that has been lost. And so I think that is something that um, the educational system at all levels needs to get back to. And if we did, And again, this might be a pie-in-the-sky aspiration on my part, but if if, if the educational system did that, we might be in a position where people could more critically access what they hear on the news, what they see on television broadcasts, what they read in newspapers, and go, well, that's not true. Or, wait a minute, you're saying that's true, but how do you know that? What's your evidence for that? Facts should matter again. Mm -hmm. And- for us to really have a generation of people who engage in that sort of critical questioning of what they're being told, we have to facilitate more critical thinking. And that is why I think is it is worth it to be in this line of work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess the, the question has to be there. We talked about how, you know, there's there's structural issues when it comes to that and, and the ability to to critical think and to be able to Put the phone away, that type of thing. How you, you, we talked about how the whole reason that you're in education and a lot of people is, you know, are, are in that world is to shape the next generation. Now that you, you know, you, you deal with them day in and day out and you have been for many years and, and seen different generations. How, uh, I guess, how much optimism do you have for, for the next, uh, the next generation? Hopefully a lot. Um,
1: I, I, I... A lot. Uh, I, I still am optimistic that there is transformative power in education. But in order for us to see that transformative power parlayed into our graduates being agents of positive change in society, I and my colleagues need to not just assign reading from a textbook and then give multiple choice and true false and matching type objective tests that don't ask people to engage in critical thought. Nor can we go, oh, I don't do that. I give papers in an age where chat GPT can write the papers for the students. We have to figure out ways, even though it makes more work for us to get people to engage with critical thought to get people to analyze, to evaluate based on evidence rather than philosophical belief systems that they might have been raised with. Uh, and you know that, could, that it, and one's political philosophy shouldn't matter, right? Because I'm talking about changing people who have been raised, you know, in 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 a mindset of lefty liberals, as much as I'm talking about uh, getting people who have been raised in a mindset to be ultra conservative, right? Both groups need to talk to each other, understand where the other one is coming from, and understand what actual data has to say about those beliefs. That they need to reconsider on both sides.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, we talked about talked about you know the state of our criminal justice system. We've talked about the state of education and now politics. Just small topics that are easy to, easy to figure out for sure. We could talk about forever. So I want to I want to let you uh, let you go. You've got other things to do. But tell us how uh, how people can find you know more more about you. We we talked earlier about how. You know these papers and things need to be more accessible. I guess I'm going to put you on the spot now and see whether yours are. So how can people uh, how can people find more about you and, and some of the things that you've uh, that you've taught and how to, how uh, they can kind of learn more about it and expand upon this conversation.
1: Well, I appreciate the question, Jackson. Thank you. Um, if people were to go to the Arizona State University website and Google me, it's it's Hank Fraudella, F-R-A-D-E-L-L-A, F-R-A-D-E-L-L-A um, uh, on the uh, directory, uh, you'll see my bio. You'll see links to a whole bunch of my publications. And some of those links will take people to freely available work. Other parts of my work can be found on um, SSRN, the Social Science Research Network, which is also freely available, uh, and some of my stuff appears in, uh, you know, op-eds that are freely available. So. Um, I wish I had the ability to make more of my work freely available that way. Unfortunately, sometimes, and this is this is a great consternation, not just for me, but many of my colleagues. When you publish something, you often have to assign your copyright to a journal uh, who then controls that work and they get to, de- to control the dissemination of it. But uh, more often uh, these days, we're starting to see uh, ways uh, around that. Um, I'm very grateful to uh, platforms like SSRN that help uh, people like me uh, disseminate even early versions of our work, maybe before they go through the the editing and copywriting process, uh, but, but so that the information gets out there.
0: Well, it sounds like a lot of stuff out there for people to people to chew on for sure. So I really, really appreciate your time.
1: Uh, I uh, thank you. And if I could end by saying, please don't just look at my work, right? I encourage people to go to the conversation and the crime report. Two freely accessible, doesn't cost anything, uh, websites that have really good digestible, empirically based suggestions for fixing a lot of the problems we talked about today, Jackson.
0: I love that. Digestible is a good word. Thank you very much. So that was Dr. Hank Fadilla. Can't uh, emphasize enough just how great the conversation was with him. I learned so much. You know, my goal was to play devil's advocate in, in several situations. You you heard me do that where, you know, I, I know as a listener, there's there's so many different people that listen with so many different, um, you know, viewpoints that I always like to just get the questions answered that I think some people Maybe thinking so. It's it's uh, you know sometimes those those devil advocates are, are uh, you know my viewpoint. Sometimes they're they're definitely not. But I like to uh, I like to at least get the questions answered that I think some people have, and I think Hank did a tremendous job answering those questions and uh, you know dispelling some misconceptions, and then also just you know answering. Uh, and, uh, and helping people understand his, uh, his point of view on, on others. So can't, uh, can't stress enough how much I enjoyed sp- speaking with, uh, Dr. Fadella. I really appreciate his time. Urge you to go check out his, his work. He explained where you can find all of that. I will put links in the show notes to that as well. But, uh, you know, these are important topics and, and no matter where you you sit on uh, sit on each of them, just the the ability to talk about them is important. So, really, really happy to uh, to have had that time with uh, with Dr. Fidela this week to to do that. And uh, hope uh, hope he's got you thinking. So I I think that's uh, that's the best best outcome to uh, to come away with from this conversation. So, thanks for being here. If you haven't already. Go give us a five-star uh, rating on Apple and on Spotify. Leave us a written review on Apple. Even more amazing. Go follow on Instagram, Not in a Huff podcast, jacksonhuff.com, Not in a Huff on Facebook. Lots of really, really great places to follow along. Amazing guests this week. More amazing guests to come. So hope to see you next week. Take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think, or hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.